Thank you, Amber. Good morning, everyone. I hope you had an amazing holiday week celebrating with your families and Thanksgiving and all of that. Um, almost 15 years ago, I was large and in charge, um, big pregnant and ready to pop, as they say. It was three days after Christmas, and I was on a mission. I was, um, maybe we might call it extreme nesting, because I was in fact in labor, but I was also in denial, because I was like, no, 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 this baby cannot come yet, because we are not ready for her. See, Ella was just one year old at the time, and so I wasn't quite as prepared as I was with Ella, and Lainey's room was not ready yet. And so later on that night, late into the evening, when it became clear that this is the real thing and it's not gonna go away, I was having contractions and putting together furniture at the same time. And just a few, yes. <laughs> and just a few hours later, Lainey Grace made her entrance into the world. See, I knew someone was coming, but I needed to prepare a room for them. I knew someone was coming, but I needed to make space for her arrival. It has been my privilege the last several years to speak this Sunday after Thanksgiving here at City Church, and I really like to take the opportunity to gather some really valuable information for us. Um, and so I would like to take a poll um, of your family's uh, policies for Christmas decoration, okay? I think this is valuable information. This is a no judgment zone, okay? But I think it's good for us all to know where we land and where we stand. So if you are, as a family, your rule is we wait until after Thanksgiving to begin all things Christmas for our indoor Christmas and decorations. If you are an after Christmas family, please raise your hand. Alrighty. If you love joy in your life, <laughs> and because of this and your desire to pursue joy, you are a before Thanksgiving family to do your, your um, decorations and all things Christmas. Yes. I, I think we're outnumbered, but that's okay. We're small yet mighty, all right? I think this, again, is just valuable information for us to know, okay? So today is a bit of an unusual day. Most years, this Sunday after Turkey Day is the first Sunday of Advent, and we officially launch into the church calendar, and I have all of the fuzzy, happy feelings inside of me because this is absolutely, without a doubt, my most favorite time of year. My heart still feels fuzzy and happy because I am happy to be here with you this morning, but it is not officially Advent yet. Next Sunday, we will officially start with day one of the church calendar and with our Advent series, Make Room. Today is a bonus week. We have ended streams in the desert last week. What a beautiful series that was. And yet we have yet to begin Advent. And so what are we to do today? The slide behind me is kind of giving it away, but I'm glad you're wondering. Luckily, I have the answer. Just like I went through with Lainey Grace that Christmas season so many years ago, we know someone is coming and we need to prepare room for them. We know someone is coming and we need to make space for them and that's what we'd like to talk about today. What does it look like to make room in our hearts and lives and we're gonna frame it through the ancient spiritual practice of simplicity. First, a quick refresh on spiritual practices. 
when we look, as we have discussed many times before, at the life of Jesus, the full life of Jesus. We want to take note and then live out the lifestyle of Jesus. One way to see the gospels in the library of scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one way to see them is through the lens of biographies. They are biographies of Jesus's life, and we can learn so much about him when looking at it in that way, because it really encourages us to look between the lines, between the famous stories that we know so well, and not only about the story, but how did he approach people? What was his pace like? Who did he interact with? When we really look at it as biographies, we can learn about his life and then turn around and apply it to our lives and how we live. The rhythms or details of his lifestyle have come to be called spiritual disciplines or practices. I love the term practices. I'm naturally a a disciplined person, which is great most of the time, but it becomes, I can tend to lean towards legalism and become very rigid at times, and so personally, I prefer the word practices because this word automatically implies that I don't have this thing down yet, and I never will. I am practicing always. But no matter what you call them, they are the how that we follow Jesus, how we adopt his lifestyle. These practices or disciplines are a way for us to access power. Take working out for an example. Working out, lifting weights, running, et cetera, this is ultimately a way to access power in your body. Just because I can't lift something today doesn't mean I'm unable to do it. It's just that I'm not able to do it yet. But if I put in the work, I can access power that when the time comes, I will be able to lift this thing. That is what discipline does, and the same applies to our spiritual life. It's doing what I can do now in order to affect what I currently cannot do. You can also take gardening as an example. Martin Laird says this, spiritual disciplines facilitate a process that is out of one's control, but it does not have the capacity to determine an outcome. A gardener, for example, does not actually grow plants. The gardener practices finely honed skills, such as cultivating soil, watering, feeding, weeding, pruning, but there is nothing the gardener can do to make the plants grow. However, if the gardener does not do what a gardener is supposed to do, the plants are not as likely to flourish. In fact, they may not grow at all. Gardening involves skills of receptivity. The skills are necessary, but by themselves, insufficient. I can't just access more self-control if I haven't practiced the things that require self-control and let that grow in my life. And so we practice things like fasting. I can't just access more peace and joy in my life if I haven't practiced those things that enable those things to grow in my life. And so we practice Sabbath and silence and stillness. Jesus never commands practices He simply says, follow me. And that is what we want to do with our lives. Follow him. Practices are a means to an end. They are never the goal. They are never the bullseye. The goal, the end goal is always Christ-likeness. How do I become more and more like my teacher? And this is one of the ways that we find we can step into that. 
And so with that in mind, we can't just access more space in our hearts and lives to squeeze Jesus in. We have to practice the things that make space in our hearts and in our lives. And so we practice simplicity. I think I can say with most confidence that we all tend to live cluttered lives. Schedules, homes, cars, stuff, and more stuff that floods every nook and cranny in our spaces. And this time of year is a constant undercurrent of more. Christmas lists, new toys, new devices, more, more, more. Black Friday ads, sales and deals. And listen, I'm not, I love a good deal. I am not preaching against that. I was the lady that was in line at three o'clock in the morning to get a good deal when Black Friday was good, okay? When it used to be the way it used to be. But during every season of our lives, but I think especially this one, we have to keep our intention clear and choose to not get sucked into the cycle of more just for the sake of more. This American dream cycle that says, if I can just get to that next level, if I can just get that next thing, that I will be more happy, I will be more joyful, and this thing will do that for me, but it's the carrot on the stick that keeps on moving. Now, I will say that simplicity or minimalism, as you may have heard, is much more popular these days, and depending on the circles that you run in may even be trendy right now. Does this shirt spark joy in my life? If not, it's gone, all right? If you've not gone through your closet and done that, it's good. And I have no problems with this. But as followers of Jesus and apprentices of Jesus, we need to make sure that we keep the first things first. It's not just a removal of stuff from our cabinets for the sake of more space, which is good, and this practice will lead us to that, but it is first and foremost about looking at our lives and intentionally getting rid of the things that clutter our view of God. What in our lives is crowding him out? What in our lives is taking up so much time and space and attention that I so easily get distracted from the main thing? Long before simplicity is the amount of shoes that you have or the knickknacks that you have on the shelves, it is about simplicity of the heart. Richard Foster defines it this way, simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. You catch that subtle distinction there. It begins with an inward reality and then it flows out from there. We can clear all of the clothes and the trinkets that we want, but if it doesn't start first with a vision or an aim or a goal for creating more space for what really matters, it is futile. We have to simplify around something. If we clear space in our closet, our schedule, our mind, something will come in and fill it if we clear that space. If we just start by clearing out stuff without a clear intention or a vision, we will just buy more stuff. If we empty out our calendar and create space in our calendar without a clear vision in mind, we will just end up booking more appointments and filling up that time over time. What you center your heart on will define what you do or do not become in life. Before you begin to figure out what you are saying no to, we have to first start with what we are saying yes to. What is the vision of life that we are called to live? And for that vision, we turn to the words of Jesus. We find Jesus in Luke chapter 12, teaching in front of a large crowd of people. He is 
teaching and warning against something that we don't really like to talk about a lot here in the West. He's talking about wealth or the rich man or called out another way, mammon. Mammon or the influence of material wealth was personified in this God, lowercase g, of mammon and Jesus called this out. This is the only other God that Jesus called out by name in his teachings on earth which gives us a glimpse into its importance and the risk that we are, that we have of being seduced by it. He is teaching on this parable of the rich fool. And then he goes right into this, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, therefore meaning because of what I just told you, this is what you can apply to it. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we see here a lesson on worry and how our hearts are bent to worry that about things that in the ultimate view of life aren't as vital as we tend to make them out to be. We worry and toil and spin, and what does this add to our lives, Jesus says. He says, the pagan world runs after such things, but you have a father who knows that you need them and will provide them for you, and there's no reason for you to run after those things in that way, and then he gives us this instruction. He says, you are to seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added unto you. Seek first his kingdom. This is the vision that we were just talking about. This is the vision to center in our lives upon what fills up that space that we're clearing out, his kingdom. His access to his kingdom here and now, right here where we are. So what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? This word seek here in this passage can be translated as search until you find, but it also carries with it a passion component. 
It is marked by zeal here in this translation. It's not translated this way in the translation of scripture that we just read, but it is actually the exact same word that Jesus used in the previous sentence. The pagan world, quote, runs after. That word runs after and seek are, this, are translated from the same root word. We are to seek first or run after the kingdom of God. That carries with it a bit more passion when you think of it in that way. To run after, to intentionally pursue, to map out a course and run after his kingdom. This means to invest the resources of our life into God and into what he is doing here in this world. We are to live for his presence and his pleasure. Living in his presence. This is what we mean when we're talking about his kingdom filling up this space. His presence filling up every single nook and cranny of our lives. Living for his presence and his will. In his kingdom, he gets what he wants. We are living in his presence and for his will. In order to really do this and do this well and allocate all of the resources that God has given us in order to run after his presence and integrate our lives around seeking his kingdom, we must eliminate this sacred secular divide that we've talked about before. Sacred meaning this is I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to church, all the things that are overtly spiritual, if you will. And the secular meaning everything else, our job, our work, our kids, our running around, our brushing our teeth, and all of the things. We have to eliminate that because everything is holy. We must understand that driving the kids to and fro, mowing the lawn, cooking the dinner, brushing our teeth, it is all a spiritual act. And God is with us in everything. His presence is with us always. Everywhere we go, we are in his presence. So don't misunderstand when I say living for his presence and living in his will that I mean some sort of unhealthy version of vocational ministry. I'm talking about holistic worship and surrender with our whole lives. And so we look at our whole lives. We each have a portion to give. And we say, how can this be given for the sake of his kingdom? But this can be a big leap and an intimidating one to go from zero all the way to the end of this. And so we see tied directly into this teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus, a practice that can aid us in this journey towards fully surrendering and truly running after the kingdom of God. And so we lean into a practice that we can control to help us gain power and fruit in our lives that we can't control. And by power, when I'm talking about accessing power, I'm not talking about our power. I'm talking about the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, supernatural power given to us. And so we lean into the practice of simplicity to make space. A.W. Tozer says this, we Christians must simplify our lives or lose untold treasures on earth and in eternity. Three things as we um, end today, three simple things to highlight as fruit of simplicity in our lives, along with three questions to examine our hearts. Simplicity, number one, diminishes distraction. 
Have you ever walked into an empty room or an empty house with a young child? Bodie and I have, um, throughout our married life, have owned several different houses. We have a kind of a rhythm um, that we started very early on, very beginning of marriage, that we buy houses that need a lot of work, and we move into them, and we live basically in a constant state of remodel for several years while living in them, and just when it gets right where we want it to be, we sell it, and we take the profits, and we put it into the next house, and on and on the, the the drama goes. Um, It sounds like a lot, but we actually really, really love it. But all that to say, we've bought several houses in our lives, and so we've had kids that we've walked into empty houses with. And reminder, we've never bought a brand new house. And so we're talking about houses that have seen some things, okay? uh, They've lived some lives, and they are uh, cleanish for the most part, um, but empty. And as soon as a child walks into an empty room or house, the instant instinct is to take off running, arms spread out, just running around. Because I can run and it's freedom and there's space and I can run and my arms aren't going to hit anything and there's nothing distracting me. They sometimes fall on the floor and make a carpet angel or something like that. And if it's anything like the last house that we bought, we're like, get up off the floor, off of that gross carpet. (laughs) But it's freedom. The lack of distraction, the lack of stuff immediately activates this freedom and joy in this child. And the same is true for us jaded by the world, sometimes grumpy, older people, okay? Our lives are cluttered, but they don't have to be. The reality is we live complex lives, but complexity isn't necessarily the enemy here though. Life comes with ups and downs and we are required to hold a lot of things all at the same time. The opposite of simplicity isn't complexity, it's superficiality. A life that is trivial or vain. The choice isn't between a simple life or a complex one. Circumstances are out of our control sometimes that make our lives very complex and it's not as easy and black and white as that sometimes. Think, we are, what we're really speaking to is a deep life or a shallow one. Think of simplicity as first a singleness of mind, simplicity in its strongest, most literal sense, as in simplicity as opposed to duplicity. Simply pursuing one goal over everything else, a single focus over every aspect of our lives. The goal isn't having less possessions, we already laid out the goal. It is to seek first his kingdom. Remember, it's not about getting rid of everything. It's intentionally promoting the things that we value the most and getting rid of everything that distracts us from the things that we most value. This will lead us inevitably to getting rid of things in our lives. And maybe depending on what stage we're in, it will lead us to getting rid of a lot of things in our lives, but we will do it in a healthy and intentional way. And so we evaluate our lives with a simple question. What are the things in my life that distract me from his kingdom? Simplicity diminishes distractions. And number two, simplicity increases time. When Lainey was, uh, I don't know, like five or six years old, um, of course, Ella's one step older than her, and she had been starting playing basketball and some of softball, some of the like ball sports. We put Lainey in those things and we quickly realized this isn't Lainey's calling. 
This isn't what she's gonna do with her life. Um, but she flipped and spun and did things all over the house all the time, and so we were like, maybe gymnastics. So I took her to a gymnastics class, night one, intro, very first level, okay? We were there, it was like an hour-long class. Um, about 45 minutes in, we were almost done, and a guy came up to me and he was like, introduced himself and he asked to like take me outside in the hallway. And he was like, a coach came and got me and we've been watching you know, your daughter, Lainey. And we'd really like to um, take this last 15 minutes and move her up to the big room because she has like great potential. We can see already and we wanna move her up to the big room and we could start her in on the, he started going all of this thing. We took Lainey into the big room and all of the things were happening as uh, you know, all the things. I don't know much about gymnastics, <laughs> but there's a lot of things happening. Um, and we were in this room for a while, while, and then he talked to us before we left. And when I got in the car, I was like, oh my goodness, we have to get out of this and get out of this very quickly. This is moving faster than I realized even on night one. And so I knew that we had to get out before Lainey fell in love with the sport. And so I was like, Lainey, how about dance? How about dance once a week? I knew after one night that this was gonna be way too big of a commitment for us and what our family life was built around at the time and we did not have the margin to give. Everything has a cost. We all know this, but most of the time we stop at the monetary cost of the thing. But the reality is that everything in your life costs you with the initial addition or purchase of the thing, and then it keeps costing you with the time that it takes from you. And even on the flip side, some of us have things that actually add monetary value to our life, but it drains your time. And when you really look at this side hustle or whatever it is, if fully inspected, may be too great a cost. More clothes means more laundry and more space to store. More cars mean more time and money on upkeep and maintenance, etc. More hobbies mean more money to supply those hobbies and time to do those hobbies and more time to get good at those hobbies. A bigger house means more time and money cleaning, yard work, fixing the things that go wrong, all the things that come with that, and on and on and on the list goes. Thomas Kelly, in his gorgeous book, A Testament to Devotion, spends the last chapter on the simplification of life. And he says this, in frantic fidelity, we try to meet at least the necessary minimum of calls upon us, but we're weary and breathless. And we know and regret that our life is slipping away with our having tasted so little of the peace and joy and serenity we are persuaded it should yield to a soul of wide caliber. The times for the deeps of the silences of the heart seem so few, and in guilty regret we most postpone till next week that deeper life of unshaken composure and the holy presence where we sincerely know our true home is, for this week is much too full. How many of you can relate, like me, with being in a loop week after week saying, this week is much too full. We so often put what should be first things in our lives, we put to the back burner because of secondary things. The tyranny of the urgent takes our attention and we don't have time to build this life of depth and intention 
that deep down we long for. What we give our time and our attention to is what we become. I find it so helpful when thinking about time to go way forward in time and think about the last phase of my life. And when I get to that last phase of my life, what do I want to be known for? What is the fruit in my life that I hope is fully on display by the time I get to that time and space in my lives, in my life? I think about that phase and then I pull back to today, where I am right now. What am I giving my time to that will actually produce that kind of life? Our lives are full and that is great. Fullness isn't bad. And remember, this isn't about stopping everything and becoming monks. That's not reality. His presence is always with us. Remember, we just talked about this, living in his presence and for his will. His presence is all around us. If we can only make margin to notice him, to see him, to hear him, to feel him because he is there. It's once we cross over into this frantic hurry that we begin to lose sight of that. We begin to not be able to hear him because everything else is drowning him out. We miss the forest for the trees and we miss it because this week is much too full. And so we evaluate our lives with another simple question. What are the things in my life that are stealing too much time? Last thing, simplicity exposes idols of the heart. When you begin to simplify, you will without a doubt encounter idols. Those things in your life and your heart that you know are distracting you, that you know are draining you in ways that are unhealthy and that you need to make a change but you're not quite willing and ready to let this thing go. Because being busy is a rush. Being busy makes us feel important. Having stuff, having the newest model of whatever it may be, certain possessions, it's a badge of honor where whether we wanna feel like that or not, it is. We don't wanna think of them as idols, but when it comes to the heart, there really isn't another way to put it. The moment we make our lives focused on anything other than God's kingdom, no matter how worthy the cause, we turn it into an idol. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It's not about the thing. Most of the things that we're talking about here aren't moral issues. We're not talking necessarily about sin, but rather a priority and a placement issue in our lives. We must guard our hearts because everything flows from it. We must guard our hearts from creating idols by continually evaluating our lives and our priorities and our willingness to let things go, even just for a season. God may call you into kind of an extreme version of really paring down, really simplifying, deleting a lot of apps off of your phone, going through your closets and clearing out space, even if it's just for a season to ensure our simplicity of focus. Remember, our singleness of mind, this is the end goal, not necessarily about having less things. 
And so we guard our heart again for everything flows from it. And so we evaluate our lives with one last simple question. Are there any idols in my heart that need to be exposed? And so we look at these simple questions. What are the things in my life that distract me from his kingdom? What are the things in my life that are stealing too much time? And are there any idols in my heart that need to be exposed? We take these simple questions and with the power of the Holy Spirit, we walk through our lives. We walk through our stuff, our closets, our cabinets, our garages, our calendars, our appointments and meetings, and simplify to a singleness of mind using these questions as a grid to run everything through. How can I, in all things, run after his kingdom? Advent begins next week. We are preparing for an arrival. And this, as we all know, is not just any arrival. Our Savior, our King, our Jesus. Will we make room? Stand with me. If you would, just close your eyes for a moment just to kind of eliminate distractions, center our hearts. As I always love to do, I wanna take a moment and let Holy Spirit speak to you about the words that you just heard, about maybe a stirring that's already going on in your heart right now. This, what we do here on Sunday mornings, teaching each and every week, it only transforms if we apply it to our lives. And so really what I would like for you to do this morning is think about one singular thing that you know needs to be simplified. That may be your calendar or your week or maybe even singling it down to one specific day that at the end of this specific day each and every week you always feel extra drained, extra tired, extra distracted. Maybe it's just thinking about one single day. Maybe it's a space in your home or in your life that you need to walk through and clear some things out. One specific room, one specific cabinet or drawer, whatever the case may be, singling one thing out in your mind and in your heart right now. And I'm just gonna say these questions one last time. And I want you to think about that day, that week, that space and let Holy Spirit reveal those things to you that need to be simplified. What are the things in my life that distract me from his kingdom?
what are the things in my life that are stealing too much time? Are there any idols in my heart that need to be exposed? Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your sweet words. Words that are never condemning us because we're too far off the mark, but always gently guiding us, walking with us as we take steps into the life that you have promised us. Not somewhere far off in the future, but the life that you've promised us here and now, life in your kingdom. Living in your presence and for your will. And so we think about our lives and our stuff. Where have we drifted? Gently guide us back. Where have we become blind? Would you open our eyes? And I pray, Lord, for each and every one of us, for our hearts and for our actions, God, that this would not just be something that we talk about here in this room, God, but that it would actually make its way into our lives as we practice this thing you will grow fruit. It's not some magic trick, God. Cultivating takes time. And so we surrender to the process, but we take steps to control what we can control and to make space for you. Because as we make space for more of your presence, for more of your kingdom, as we run after it in this way, God, we will not regret it because you are good and your presence is what we long for deep down. We thank you for it. God, continue to speak as we prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning. <laughs>